You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. Listen to this text from Job. And then a short text from the gospel. Because God wants to create space in our life for us to see where we don't trust him. And then to fill that space with such a unique presence that we will begin to trust him. The Bible has to tear us up, though, sometimes. And here's one of the texts that does it. It says, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. And then skipping a chapter to chapter 2, it says, Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. So God admits that he allowed himself to be incited to destroy Job for no reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And Job took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But Job said to her, you speak as one of the foolish people would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And with that disturbing story in the air, Mark chapter 10, verses 13 to 16. And people began bringing children to Jesus that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands upon them. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you're doing right now. And as... Our worship leader so eloquently said, I pray that we would have the space to be vulnerable before you today. That you would truly open up to us, as individuals in this room, the areas where we don't trust you. And, and heal that. Be here to heal right now, Holy Spirit. I pray that you would be everywhere in this room at once. That you would hover over all of the lack of trust that you would immediately let those of us who struggle to trust you know that you're not angry, you're not put off, you're attracted to the opportunity 
to restore our trust. You're attracted to the opportunity to show us Jesus. You're attracted to the opportunity to bring us before the Father, Holy Spirit. Help all of us to know that it is not distance that you place between us when we don't trust you, but you actually pull us in closer. Like a loving parent over a child, you yearn for the moments where you can reveal your parenthood to us again. So I pray that you do that right now. While, while we're speaking today, God, put the words in my mouth. And while I speak your words, heal. Already begin to heal right now, Heavenly Father. There is not a person in this room right now who doesn't struggle with this, that right now already, we want them to feel your presence. We want you to be working on them right now, Father God. In your name we pray. Amen. On Friday, I took Sophia outside to play with her new bike that we got her for her birthday. And it was beautiful outside, and my two-year-old is pedaling horribly because she doesn't know how to, and I was making fun of her from a distance, watching her try. And she gets mad at the bike in two seconds and wants to, like, eat dirt. It was such a great moment. That's what you think about. And I bring her inside, and Jacqueline's making food, and I'm like, oh, my God, this is like I can smell. We're about to eat. This is amazing. And Sophia says, like, Mommy cooking, and this is such a beautiful moment. And so I let the door go behind me, and Sophia's behind me, and I hear her start to cry really, really loud. And I realize I have closed her finger in the door. Not the part where the door closes, but the other part. Nice going. Thanks. Such mercy in the room. And so we get her finger out, and she runs to me, and I'm hugging her, and Jacqueline comes, and Jacqueline immediately, because moms are just like this, she immediately has a cold compress. Like, probably she was getting it because the Holy Spirit told her to before Sophia closed her finger in the door. And we put it, we put it on Sophia's little tiny finger, and I'm holding her, and the cold compress is on there. And she doesn't like the cold compress. And so she pushes it away and she says, I'm all better. There's a cut on, this, on the inside of her finger. There's a huge like dent, like an indentation of the door on the other side. And her hand's shaking like this. And she says, I'm all better. I'm all better. And just in that moment, and please don't let moments like that go by because God talks to us through these moments. What struck me, I'm going to say two things that struck me, one right now and one at the end of the message. What initially struck me was that when she saw the way that we wanted to heal her and she didn't like the way we wanted to heal her, she confessed that she was all better when she wasn't. So let's let that sit here for a moment. How many times do we not trust God to heal us the way that we need to be healed. And so we spend so much of our life acting like we're better. Because for some reason, the way he wants to heal us feels worse than the wound that we got. Because the way he wants to heal us will always go against our ego and the way we feel we should be healed. And so we will spend most of our time bleeding, confessing we're better, because we don't like the cold compress that God was putting on our hand. Heal me, but heal me in a way that makes me who I was before I got hurt. Don't heal me in a way that's going to make me different than I've ever been. 
We want to be healed to go back to the people we were before we hurt ourselves. We don't want to be healed to become the kinds of people who will stop hurting ourselves that way. One just gets me back to square one, but one kills me and turns me into a completely different person. That's why when we sang, uh, and I always get the lyrics of these songs wrong, so please, you can judge me, go ahead. I get them all wrong all the time. One of the songs we sang talked about how God designs a valley for us to strengthen us. That's when we say I'm all better. Don't bring me down there. Don't strengthen me in the valley. Strengthen me. Don't even strengthen me at the mountaintop because I don't feel like walking up it. Strengthen me somewhere like midway up the mountain. I don't want to walk all the way up there like Mount Beacon because I'll be panting for air. And I certainly don't want to be all the way down in the valley because it's dark and terrible. So heal me like right here where I am now. And God says, no, you're either walking up there and exerting or you're going down there into the valley. But I'm going to strengthen you in a way that's going to change you. Not just make you better. I'm going to heal you in a way that doesn't just remove the pain, but removes the, your capacity to be injured like that. Daddy, I'm all better. This text from Job makes it impossible for us to trust God in the state that we are. Don't check out on me. This is so important. If I make a mistake right now, if I, if I sin against my wife, if I sin against the church, if I say something, you know, that I shouldn't say at the door, I make a joke and it was just one of those didn't land, it hurt, right? If that happens and I say, look, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Your ability to trust me in that moment is not rooted in my behavior. It's rooted in your ability to know that I'm seeking repentance and that I can change. So when somebody says they trust me or when I say I trust you, I'm not trusting the you that won't ever sin. I'm trusting the you that I know is pursuing Christ and you'll say sorry. You'll be faithful to repentance. I'm I'm trusting the you that I know is getting better. But when God does something like this in the book of Job, he doesn't repent. He is what he does. He is his actions. He took Job's family because of a conversation he was having with somebody in heaven. So you're not going to expect him to change. So it actually becomes harder to trust when that happens. And at the end of the day, if we want to be real and vulnerable, like Stephanie said, if we want to take down those walls, let's be honest, we're all going through something right now that we know God was capable of having not happen. Every one of us is going through some kind of pain, whether it's a 1 or a 10, on the pain meter, we're all going through something that God could have prevented. And so we have to sit there and say, this text validates that you can do that. And so I'm sure there's somebody in the room right now who wants me to talk about theodicy and the rationale and the apologetic about how and why a loving God would allow evil. But here's the thing. When we do that, when we try to give an apologetic for the book of Job, we strengthen the very thing that Job is trying to heal. We deny and we cover our lack of trust with overt and excessive explanations. Hear what I just said again. We cover our lack of trust by over-explaining. 
We fill the space that a lack of trust creates with words and explanations. And we think if the pastor can be clever, we could almost erase what we think Job is saying. And here's what I want to tell you. Job is saying what it says it's saying. It is saying that. So what do we do? It creates, it reveals, it presses on, it exposes the fact that we don't trust God. And what happens for the rest of the book is Job gets three friends who show up, and for seven days they remain quiet. And then on the eighth day on, all they do is try to give reasons for why Job may be suffering like this because they don't want to believe that God would just do this. So maybe it's because you sinned. Maybe it's because somebody else sinned. And then they just go on and on for 35 chapters of all of this explanation. And then when God finally shows up and talks to Job, he never explains it. All he does, watch this, all he does is give Job a revelation of who he is. He never says why he did this. He just says, here I am, look at me again. We always know more than Job for the entirety of the story. Job never knows what we know. He never knows that there's this conversation in heaven. And honestly, would it matter if he did? Would it make him like, okay, God, so Satan shows up and convinces you to kill my family. So now that I know that, praise be to you. It wouldn't matter We are so convinced that if we had answers, we would be okay. We would be the same that we are right now. There wouldn't be much different at all if we had all the answers. But we fill the space with explanation. And here's what one theologian said. Anyone who tries to unravel the problems in Job will become unraveled unraveled himself. So what do we do with the book? We do what Job's three friends did at first. We go outside to the ash heap, to the dung hill where Job is, scratching himself with broken pieces of clay, and we sit silently with him. As one theologian said, Job's friends were the best comforters until they spoke. Don't overexplain the book. Let's let the book bother us today. What space does this book create that is problematic? I want to read a text from Hebrews, and here's what I want to do. I'm piling on reasons for us to, right now what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to pluck the wound of lack of trust, and I'm trying to hit it so much that it gets swollen and it really, really starts to hurt before we land the plane today. Like, if there's a deep bruise that has almost, like, it doesn't really hurt that much anymore, I want to keep punching it for a little while longer until you can really see that bruise again. So I'm going to try to say all the discouraging things for a little while. Is that so exciting? No. This is terrible, but we have to do it because there's a beautiful reason why. Hebrews 11, verse 29 to 38. This starts off so well. It's talking about all the great things that happen because people had faith. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Praise the Lord. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Praise the Lord. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Praise the Lord. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, 
Enforce justice, obtain promises, stop the mouth of lions, quench the power of fire, escape the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Praise the Lord. Some were tortured. What? Refusing to accept release. Why? So that they might rise again to a better life. What? Others suffered mocking. This is still all because of faith. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. No. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. That's horrible. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. We really only preached the first half of that text. By faith, Women received back their dead. By faith, people were sawn in two. Why? I'm not going to lie to you. I don't want to use a bad word, but I was quite mad. When I read the Job text, and then I, the Spirit leads me to the Hebrews text, and I'm like, okay, we can avoid Job by having faith, it turns out. And I become like one of Job's friends. Maybe he didn't have faith. And then I read the other part, and I'm like, no, God, you're horrible. Not funny. I said in my office, in this building, you're horrible for this. Because a tsunami just took out 1,200 people in a third world country. What's wrong with you? A friend of mine, three days older than me, best friend in high school, in rehab, overdosed and died. Why? Why? My cousin, 21 years old, got drunk, got killed in a car accident, died. Why? I'm sure every one of you have a yell right now, too. Something where you would say, this happened, why? Every one of us do. And all the Holy Spirit says to me is you need to sit in this with the people. It's awkward. I have reasons. They won't matter. We could sip on something and talk philosophically all day long. It'll be fun, but it won't matter. It won't matter the person who, who lost that kid in the car accident. Doesn't bring my friend Chris back. We sit there and we say, this is what I'm talking about. Why? And the Holy Spirit says, allow your anger, your frustration the texts themselves that maybe never will get answered. Like, I think we've turned heaven into what we're not allowed to have here, like streets of gold, <laughs> answers to everything. I think in heaven we'll be so restored that we'll finally realize we don't want answers to everything. We still want to be able to ask questions because that's, that's when we encounter him the most. I think we'll always want to be disciples when, our, when we're transformed. Right now, we, we want to learn to get ourselves out of having to be disciples. We want our brain and our understanding to make us not want to have to ever ask a question again. And there's, there's a funny anecdote uh, that rabbis have where Gentile parents send their kids to school and say, give all the right answers. And Jewish parents send their kids to school and say, ask really good questions. And I think we tend to be like the Gentiles there and we want to have the right answers 
And at the end of the day, if you've ever dealt with anything severe in your life, this is not just rhetorical. I think we all have the same answer. Will the answers to why even matter? Will they change what happened? If God told us why he did what he did, I still think we'd be like, still you shouldn't have. Good answer doesn't help me right now. My good friend, uh, Dr. Chris Green, he said, faith is merely doubt refusing to take no for an answer. All we're left with, this is not the popular message, but this is closer to the truth. All we're left with is to hang in the tension and in the tragedy that texts like this and then the reality of the world we live in, they create this horrible space where we say, God, I do trust you and I'm, I'm with you, but I don't understand the resolve of this text and I don't understand why things are happening in my life the way they are. And we will just say all the right Christian things and what will happen is the biggest tragedy of all, the biggest attack of the devil, is we'll stop thinking we have a trust issue. We'll praise, we'll read, we'll pray, we'll do all the things and we'll stop. We have to spend the rest of our life knowing we have a trust issue. Because God inhabits space. And our whole life, anytime anything creates space, space being what we hope and what is happening, anytime those things separate, we fill it with some kind of mind-numbing reality. We fill it with some kind of Novocaine, be it food, be it drink, be it overt entertainment, be it social media, whatever it is, we fill that space because we just don't want to deal with the trust issue. There is something holy and right about not trying to find answers but sitting in the heap of ruin with this text and saying, here's what might happen. You're the worst. You're the worst. I really feel like you're the worst. Something changed there. Sometimes it makes me mad when you do what you do. Sometimes it makes me angry when you don't tell me why you're doing what you're doing. Sometimes I want to walk away from you, but thank you for keeping my heart steadfast. Sometimes I want to leave you, but Spirit, thank you that you keep dragging me back there. Holy Spirit, thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness even when I don't understand. All of a sudden, you're saying, I love you more than anything, and I need you so bad. It started with, how dare you, you're the worst. And if we stay there long enough, without any answers, something happens in that space, and it gets filled with praise, and it, ready, it comes to a peace that passes all understanding. It's a peace that goes beyond what we can comprehend. And let me tell you, a peace that doesn't exceed understanding is a peace that will die with our lack of understanding. But a peace that passes understanding is a peace that will always transcend what happens in the world and the crazy texts of the Bible. We don't need a peace that comes from our understanding because our understanding is futile. We need a peace that fills every space that my lack of understanding creates. This is why the, uh, the writer of Proverbs would say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, not the facts about him. The fear of him. There's fear of God when we say, 
You're the worst. How dare you? What are we doing? We're being defiant in a right way when we do that because we're saying, I can't stand you, but I'm going to stand my ground and keep talking to you. I'm going to call you names, but I'm still going to call you. I am going to get mad. I am going to say some stuff. I'm going to repent of it, but it's going to be happening this way. That's the, that's the fear of the Lord. That's the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom has nothing to do with facts. Wisdom has everything to do with the fact that you get so mad at God when he does something you don't understand, and the reason why you're mad is because you don't want to think for a second that he might not be who he is. And he finds that so endearing. He finds that so endearing. Because he's, what he hears is, listen to Dan yelling at me down there. He can't live without me. Even when I frustrate him, he still. See, I almost fell over when Stephanie was closing, when we had that word given about giving ourselves away, and then Stephanie sang. Because there's a real mysterious mystery with the Trinity that happens on the cross. Jesus, the Son, is standing in the tension of the fact that he's also the Father and he's also the Spirit. Scrambled eggs. Jesus, in one breath, goes... <gasps> Why have you forsaken me? Okay, that creates problems because he is the father that he says has forsaken him. But in the moment of crying out, listen to this, in the moment of crying out, God, you've forsaken me, later on he says, Father, into your hands. Now forget, hold on with what he says for a moment. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you not here? Why is this happening? Father, into your hands. Jesus on the one hand is saying you're not here, and on the other hand he's saying, but I still know you are. And he's doing that, not because he's necessarily wrestling with that, but because he's showing us how we're supposed to wrestle. It's okay to say, why have you forsaken me? But still know when you say it, you can still say your hands are still here. Why have you forsaken me? I'm going to give you something. How can you if you think he's not there? And what does he give him? He gives him his spirit. Into your hands I commit my... He is the spirit. So watch this. On the one hand, Jesus cries out, you've abandoned me. But on the other hand, he abandons himself to the Father. You know why? Because Jesus knows what Job didn't. The Father's doing something, and I can trust it. Jesus knew what we know when we read Job that Job didn't know. The Father's doing something. Why have you forsaken me? I'm also going to forsake myself for you. We live in a world that says it can only be one or the other, and the Trinity says, no, your whole life here is going to be both. Yell at him for forsaking you, but still know his hands are close enough for you to give yourself to. This is how we wrestle. That space that's created when we live in that tension, that's where the gifts and the fruit of the Spirit will show up in our life. That's where we'll love our neighbor as ourself when we can embrace that tension. I, I want to I quickly talk about a few ways that we can know that we're dealing with a lack of trust in God. Like that was sort of the... 
headier stuff, but I want to get it down to things that we can readily recognize. Like when we leave here today, I want, I want to just, I tried to think of the five most general uh, ways that we can know we're dealing with a lack of trust. I tried to think of five so that maybe we'll recognize one this month. <laughs> so what are some ways that we know that we're dealing with a lack of trust in God? One is instant response to triggers. The minute something triggers you, the minute you hear something, the minute you think something, the minute somebody says something to you, you need to respond as fast as the comment was given. It might not even be a comment. It might be a bill that you get in the mail, and right away, everything stops. You could be watching a movie. You could be hanging out. It could be Saturday. You get the bill, and it's like all hands on deck. We're not doing anything else. We're figuring this out right now. Anytime that we instantly respond to a trigger... We're revealing that we do not trust God enough to sit in the ash heap for a minute and just sit with it. Somebody sends you an email ripping you up. And you shut your computer and say, first you say all things that will just bleep out. A whole lot of bleeps. And you wait. You get a report back from the doctor. You get the hint that the person you're with might not be as with you as you would like them to be. If we need to instantly respond, it's because we can't live for a second without control. Because we're having trouble trusting. Another one, excessive conversation. <laughs> I just, some I, I write a lot of them just because it's me, so... That's kind of how I get most of my material. I'm just like, where have I failed miserably in my life? Excessive conversation during the unresolved. I, try to, I literally spent a lot of time trying to think of like very neutral examples. Uh, you, you have a car, and you have that moment where like you, you bring it into the mechanic for an oil change, and then they tell you it's going to be $2,500 because there's all kinds of other stuff wrong with it. And you're in that moment where you're like, do we pay to get it fixed or do we just get a new car, right? Like, is it worth it to... And so at some point, you decide, I'm going to get it fixed. And now in yourself, you're sitting there saying, you know, I really don't know if that was the right decision. And it doesn't always have to be monumental choices. The crumbs and bubbles of our choices can drive us crazy, amen? And so you're sitting there thinking, I don't know if I made the right choice. So you start calling people and you start texting people and you start posting things and what you're looking for is you're looking for somebody to affirm that you made the right decision. And so you start excessively talking about it, not because you're looking for counsel, because odds are you already made the decision. <laughs> you're looking for affirmation, and you're talking too much. Understand, this is coming out of my playbook. I wrote that play. I get it. I get it. You always score a touchdown on it, but then you see the referee through the flag and it's getting called back for holding. Like, that's what happens on that. It's the need to try and talk to people in such a way that they will say good job to you. And notice, when you're insecure and you're talking to people and you're looking for affirmation, you never tell them the story as it is. You tell them the story in a way that makes it easy for them to say good job. It's because of Job. It's because we don't trust him. And we're looking for ways to feel good about ourselves apart from him. Because he says, I don't care if you spent $2,500 on the car, you got a new one. 
they could both be right if you're worshiping me, and they could both be horrible if you're not. He always wants to bring you back to us and him. And we never, we only want the biggest decisions in our life to be about God. We never want everyone to be. Because then we actually have to say, my life is not my own. We want to lease ourselves to God. <laughs> we want him to rent us. Or take out a mortgage and pay me interest on my life. But don't just own me outright. Okay. You ready? Impulsive seclusion or impulsive indulgence due to the fear of tragedy. Starts with the obvious, with our loved ones, with our friends. You know, we hear about crazy things that happen all the time. Car accidents, somebody got, I got a piece of hair stuck to my face. Oh, hey, all right. Um, we hear that somebody got hit by a car in 52 over the summer, and, you know, you think, oh, my God, this could be my family. And so you either just some people, and, and every one of these isn't for everybody, but some people just literally stop doing stuff. I'm not going to Spirit of Beacon Day Parade. Somebody could drive a car through there violently, or somebody could set off a bomb, or somebody could start shooting. Or we impulsively indulge in people thinking this might be my last day with them. And we don't have normal thoughts like that, which there is something redeeming about that thought. But we overindulge because we're terrified that I, I need to get everything in today because this could be the last time. So it's either excessive seclusion, like we're so afraid of tragedy that we seclude ourselves from stuff. Or we overly indulge in the time we have. And we actually end up dehumanizing people and, and ourselves because we're so obsessed with thinking that I need to get every, all my eggs need to get into today's basket because tomorrow there could be tragedy. And we're not living. We're enslaved at that point. We're enslaved at that point. It's a lack of trust in God. The overanalyzing of our future. The overanalyzing of our future is a way that we either fear the past repeating itself or we fear that the future will be altered by a mistake that we could make in our job, in our parenting. Essentially, and when I say we're afraid of the future, listen to me, that doesn't mean 20 years from now. That could mean eight minutes from now. I think we fear the immediate future more than the long-term one in some ways. It may be expressed in the person you're with, you have an argument, and you need to resolve it today because you can't live with something unresolved in your life at all. That's fear of the immediate future. That's not fear of 20 years from now. That's the fear of thinking that things won't be perfect in five minutes. And so my world stops until I get the resolve I'm looking for. The way we are at work the way we are parenting, the way we are with our social networks, the way we are with our church, the way we are with our education, whatever it is, is our effort, even our best efforts, even our work ethic that might be through the roof good, is it coming from a place of worship or is it coming from a place of fear? Am I working really, really hard to avoid something bad happening? Or am I working really hard because God already did the thing that I couldn't do and I'm so in love with him that I just want to work hard for him? 
am I working hard to prevent or am I working hard to worship? And then some of us, out of fear, we just shut down altogether and we don't work hard. We just somehow get to analysis paralysis central and we just stop. We don't know where to start. We're so paralyzed by the fact that we could make a mistake or my past could repeat itself that we think no actions will prevent that from happening. And then one day we will say with Job, the thing that I have feared has finally come upon me. These are signs that we don't trust God. And we're not all, all of these things. And and the final one I want to say is excessive sorrow that life now will be life forever. And I want you to hear this one because this startled me. This was something that I feel God literally had me write down. The excessive sorrow over the fact that life now will be my life forever. I think we may fear more. Our greatest fear may not be that life will get worse. Our greatest fear may be that life won't get any better. What if your life now became your life forever? If that thought brings deep, unrelenting sorrow or fear or anxiety, we may have a trust issue with God. Because every one of us was in his presence today, no? How many more good things do we need? I think in my mind, I thought that our biggest fear would be that my life might get worse. But in praying, I realized, I think even for most of us, it's the fear that my life will just stay like it is right now. What if I don't break through? What if I don't overcome this trust issue that pastor's ranting about today from the pulpit? What if I never get married? What if my marriage is always a struggle? What if my job really is just paycheck to paycheck forever and I have to work until I can't walk anymore? What if I have to live in the gripping sorrow that somebody I love passed away untimely? What if the pain doesn't completely go away? I think we might, that might be the space where we all really struggle. What if how I feel right now is my lot in life and this is what I have? How dare we read the end of Job and say, God blessed him double. He gave him more kids than he had. Raise your hand if you're a parent. If you lost one of your kids, no amount of kids after that could ever replace the loss of that child. It's messed up when we treat Job's final, the final part of Job where he gets double. It's messed up when we treat that like it's money. It wasn't money that he got back double. He got back another family after losing an entire one. We don't jump around and celebrate that. We have so dehumanized his family that we've made them out to be dollar signs. God took everything away, but he gave back double. Listen, that's great when it's money. It is not cool when it's Sophia. So how do we deal with this? We need the Holy Spirit. And I said it last week, and I knew that was just going to happen, and I'll say it again right now. If that answer doesn't excite, we have grown dull. We need the Holy Spirit to help us do what Sophia did when I closed her finger in the door. She ran to the one 
who could have prevented it. She ran to the one. I opened the door. I started walking ahead of her. I let it go. And I turned around and it closed. I should have held it open for two more seconds. I could have prevented it. And she ran to the one who allowed the pain to happen. That's why I read the text where Jesus says, you cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you enter it like children. Here's what the difference is. Sophia doesn't know enough to know I could have prevented it. We think we know enough to know that God could have prevented it, but we still don't. We know as much about God as Sophia knows about me, maybe less. So listen to this text. First Corinthians 2, 6 through 12. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, let this be singed into your brains, because we've only applied this to financial blessing or houses or cars, but I think it can go so much deeper into what we're talking about now. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man has imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. You can't think of the answers to the problems that we have. We can't even imagine them. Which means if he said them to us, we wouldn't have the brain capacity or the language to even know what he's talking about. It's not part of our paradigm yet. We cannot know. So what does it say? What's in place of that? So what do I do? These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God, which we have. Now we have received not the spirit of this world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. It's only in the spirit that that moment of transition can happen when we are paralyzed by anger, hurt, and despair, and then without hearing an answer that makes sense to our brain, something uplifts inside of us and we say, but I'm going to run to him anyway. That logic doesn't work anywhere except for the supernatural, except for the Holy Spirit. And people who are devoid of the Spirit are people who will always be living by logic. And when we do, we will never love our neighbor as ourselves because I don't know what your neighbors are like, but it might not be logical to love them. We will never be able to love ourselves the right way because myself shows me every reason why I shouldn't be lovable. We will only be self-centered if we run based on logic. We'll never be sentimental. We'll never be romantic. Romance is the beauty of the illogical. Why'd you buy me these flowers? It's not our anniversary. It's not my birthday. I bought them just because you. It's not logical. That's why it's romantic. That's the Holy Spirit. He wants to pour that out on us. When we started making all these liturgical changes, everyone was so afraid we were going to become Roman Catholic. And now let me say it back. I'm afraid we might be. Not because we have a cross with green on it. Not because we say a creed. But because we are not functioning in the gifts of the Spirit the way we should. 
I'm concerned. We're not looking at our life as supernatural. Yes, inside the edges is a very logical message, but the edges are supernatural. They're not pragmatic. It's not a budget. It's not a ledger. It's a life hidden with Christ and God. We need something supernatural to pour out on us. Otherwise, we're doomed to despair. So how does that happen? Bishop Mike Owen, in a service in Kansas, said to me, you can only expect what you create space for. I love when somebody says something so simple, you think it's dumb at first. And then you like later on you're like, <gasps> you can only expect what you make space for. How do we make space? Ways to create space. Silence. Fasting or giving. Waking up early. You know, the Bible said, David said, I will awake the dawn. <laughs> Jesus on the third day woke up before dawn. Like Jesus woke up the dawn. We spend so much of our time, and I'm going to hang on this for one minute. We spend so much of our time letting the day happen to us instead of us happening to the day. Which is why most of you in this room did not hear the lectionary reading today. And here's the thing, I don't care. I don't care if it's just me and Jacqueline in here when service starts and then the place fills up 30 minutes later. I don't care. I don't care in the sense that it's not a reflection of how well we're doing as a church. Here's why I care. Why aren't you more intense about God? Why aren't you waking up the dawn with a thanksgiving and a shout? Why are you letting the day happen to you? Why are you trying to catch up all day? Make space. Be tired. Don't get enough sleep. It's supernatural. It's not natural. And if we forget that the Spirit's involved, then you know what? We should get that extra rest. But if we know the Spirit's involved, what we give to God, He will give back. So if I give Him fatigue, He might give me energy supernaturally. We forget about that stuff because we've heard it so much. But we've heard it so much because it's true. It's true. If I sow extra sleep, I'm going to reap being tired all the time. It's how the ground works. Because God made it work that way. Get up. Talk to him. Let your conversation with him be the first conversation you have. So every other conversation is coming out of the stability of that first one you had. Don't let an app be the first thing you open in the morning. A Bible. An actual one. That has pages that you could accidentally rip if you turn it too hard. Well, I can't see that when I'm lying in my bed. Then get out of bed and sit down at the table and read like an adult. Let's grow up a little bit. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. I don't know why I say I'm sorry. Because I'm just dangerously insecure, I guess. But whatever. Prayer. We pray for big decisions. But we don't pray for day-to-day -day ones all the time. We just do what makes sense. 
And then we find ourselves wrapped up in despair and we can't figure out why. And like Job's friends, we start to think we've done something wrong. Next week, this week we're talking about trusting him. Next week we're going to talk about being honest with him. I have had some of the most explosive prayer time recently because I've done something that is so dangerous. And I've actually started saying out loud what I'm thinking in my head. You know me. That's why that's, that's crazy. Like who, That's not safe for anybody. God, I can't think of anything to pray right now, but I'd like to. God, I didn't hear you respond to that when I, when I just said that to you just now. Why am I frustrated right now sitting here? Why did I get up early? Is this pointless or what? I don't feel like reading the daily office again. I don't feel like reading the Bible again. Why don't I feel like reading it again, God? Can you help me there? That has turned into an actual conversation between two people because the Holy Spirit is a person. And so now I'm actually having dialogue. Yes, if you walked in and saw me, I would look insane, but newsflash, already am. Doesn't matter, and so are you. The fact that we're just putting our hands up to what? We're nuts, but it's supernatural nuts, and it's good for the world that we're nuts, and we need to be nuts. And finally, serving creates space for the Holy Spirit. We have gotten to a place where our serving has become an end in and of itself. We are happy when we didn't really want to go, but we did. And hear me first. I'm so grateful for that kind of maturity that exists in this house. That when we don't want to, we still do. That's good. But I think sometimes we think that was the success. We forget that when I leave my home and I come to this house or an event that this house is having, I have abandoned my home. And God will never forsake what I've abandoned. He will step in behind me and do in my home what I can't do in my home, but I've left it. And what have I done when I left it? I created space in it because I'm not there. And Frankie, guys like me and you, we, we take up space in the home. You know what I'm saying? So when we leave it, we leave a lot of room for the Holy Spirit to show up. When we leave something to go serve God, to wash feet, to love Jesus and, and, and be with his body, we create space in our home. He shows up in that space and does things in that space that we couldn't do if we stayed to do it. We forget about the supernatural part of it. Salem, we need this room to become oily again. We need this room to have anointing all over it, sloppy anointing all over it. We need this room to be perfumey. We need those things that aren't logical. They get everywhere, and they're contagious, but we need the Holy Spirit. And guess what? Our kids downstairs, they need to be in this room and experience the Holy Spirit too. Well, y'all shouldn't have said that because we have some changes coming. (laughs) Starting in December, we're going to have our kids up here again in the worship service with us. Because what happened today? The Holy Spirit stopped Stephanie. Two people spoke out a word. It connected with exactly what we're going to be preaching about today. But that whole first part where the Spirit shows up spontaneously, they need to see that. They need to feel that. I was talking to John about it. 
our, our keyboard player, and he was telling me that he remembers sitting in a service watching a keyboardist, and the Holy Spirit shows up, and the service gets out of control, and he was there watching him and knew, I want to do that. I want to prophesy with my hands on those keys. Because he was in the service when it happened. Any inconvenience that has to happen, and listen to me, anybody who doesn't have kids, help people who do when we bring those kids up here. Let's, let's make this a hospitable place. Let's take care of each other. If it gets crazy, walk out into the foyer. Mike and the gang will have a chair out there for you. You can hear the music out there. You can hear the preaching out there. If we have a service where it, it's impossible to transition, then we'll just keep them up here and let it be sloppy. It'll sound like a daycare center, but the Holy Spirit will be here. Who cares? Who cares? Who cares at the end of the day? I could talk with a baby crying. It's perfectly fine. I think this is why God had me at a daycare center for six years before the Allstate job, before the Salem job. And I hated that job, and I'm going to redeem everything I hated about that job. It needs to get, it needs to get creepy in here again. We're still going to have a liturgy. We're still going to have a trellis, but we need to get a vine on it. We're still going to have a way to know that the Spirit was spontaneous. You don't know if the Spirit was spontaneous if you didn't have a plan. Everyone says we shouldn't have a service plan. Then we'll never know if we were spontaneous. And if we plan on being spontaneous, then that's a boring liturgy because we planned on the spontaneity, which means it's not spontaneous anymore. We need a plan. Well, we shouldn't have written prayers. Yes, we should have written prayers. They're called songs. Why is it a problem if I say it and not sing it? What's the difference? People have said, oh, we shouldn't do written prayers. Okay, fine, then we shouldn't sing songs because they're written prayers too. And you don't want me singing all of them because then we really shouldn't have written prayers. I need the music to be loud. When Stephanie's like, why don't we all sing? I'm like, oh, please, Jesus, bless the person next to me and behind me. We have to have the Spirit move among us. Like I said last week, and, and I just want, I need to say it because we're going to start to really press into this starting in December. We have to have callings. There's missionaries in the room. Some of you are called to be pastors, men and women. <laughs> it's true. It's true. In Christ, there's neither male nor female. We're all anointed the same way. And if there's a calling, it needs to be talked about and prayed over. It has to be. Someone's got the gift of supernatural faith in this house. The kind of faith that says, listen, I know you don't have answers, but I just felt like God wanted me to tell you that he's with you. A hundred people could say that to you, but when someone with the gift of faith says it, it knocks you over because there's a gift there. We need that, and a lot of you have it. The gift of mercy, the gift of healing, the gift of service, all this stuff, it's not active. We need a revival, not of numbers. I don't care how big the church gets. We need power in this house. We need the fruit of the Spirit in this house. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle Podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.